This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and author of the forthcoming book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is available for pre-order now. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. And by the way, on this show, we bleep out diet culture stuff like weight and calorie numbers, but we don't censor swear words or other adult language. Listener discretion advised. Hey there, welcome to episode 205 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm coming at you from a hotel room on a a work trip, so sorry for the slightly less than optimal audio quality if you're an audio nerd like I am and notice these things. But today I have a great show for you. I'm talking with fellow anti-diet dietitian Lindsay Krasna. We talk about disordered eating among athletes. She was a professional athlete and shares her story about that. We talk about why eating disorders are less of a pathology and more of a reaction to diet culture, the role of thin privilege and economic privilege in people's relationships with food, why healthcare providers should stop assuming that people have such limited knowledge around food and body issues, and so much more. It's a great conversation, and I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Rebecca, who writes, this podcast is really interesting. I was wondering what your thoughts are on gluten-free free for non-celiacs. My daughter and I have both been told by a naturopath that we are gluten or wheat intolerant. After hearing you talk about elimination diets potentially leading to disordered eating, I'm now frightened that I've made the wrong decision to try this. My daughter is only seven. If I don't have to restrict her diet, I really don't want to. So thanks, Rebecca, for that great question. And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and are not a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So yeah, this is such a great question, and I completely understand why it would come up when you're thinking about the issues around elimination diets. So I want to offer you first and foremost just compassion and recommend self-compassion as well because you are doing the best you could. You're trying to take care of yourself and your daughter. And I know that it's scary to think that you might have made the wrong decision to try this and that you don't want to mess up your daughter's relationship with food. And I totally get that. And just want to give you compassion and say to have compassion for yourself for trying something that you thought would be helpful. And all that said, I'm really glad you asked this question and that you have this sort of spidey sense going off in the back of your mind saying that maybe it isn't helpful to put her on an elimination diet or to be on an elimination diet yourself, right? Because there's really no good evidence for cutting out wheat or gluten unless you have celiac disease, which is a diagnosable standard medical diagnosis that you can get diagnosed by by traditional medical doctors. 
or if you have a genuine wheat allergy, which is, again, a diagnosable kind of standard medical condition that you can get diagnosed by an allergist using validated blood tests. So those are the two reasons that people might need to avoid wheat or gluten, celiac disease or a genuine wheat allergy. But anything else, any other reason, any sort of like naturopath diagnosed or self-diagnosed intolerance to wheat and gluten just does not have any sound scientific evidence behind it. So I talk a little bit about this in episode 94 of the podcast with Alan Levinovitz, and he's the author of a book called The Gluten Lie and Other Myths About What We Eat that I would definitely recommend. Trigger warning for that for some weight and number talk, but I think it's really good on this subject of why we've all become so obsessed and fearful about gluten and why that's totally a myth and people don't need to be cutting out gluten and wheat unless they have celiac disease or a wheat allergy, which is a really very small percentage of the population. It's only about 0.75% of the American, North American population that has celiac disease. That's less than 1%, 0.75%, right? And wheat allergy is a similarly very tiny single-digit percentage of people. And these are validated diagnoses that you can get ruled out by a medical doctor. You don't need to worry about these so-called intolerances otherwise. And there are many reasons why they can happen. So the nocebo effect is one of them. And I talked with Alan about this in episode 94. The nocebo effect is when people believe something is going to harm them. And so it does seem to cause symptoms of harm. That's the opposite of the placebo effect. Placebo effect is, you know, you believe something is going to help you. And so it does, even though the thing itself is inert and doesn't actually have any beneficial properties. The same is true with the nocebo effect. The thing in question, in this case, gluten or wheat, doesn't have any harmful properties for people without celiac disease or wheat allergies. And yet people believe that it's going to harm them because of all the myths about wheat and gluten that they've heard in diet culture. And so they do experience harm. And that experience of harm is very real, but it's not being caused by the food itself. It's being caused by our relationship with the food, which I know is mind-blowing and kind of seems hard to believe, but it's a genuine, well-documented thing in research about digestive disorders. The nocebo effect plays a huge role in these disorders and in people's perception of their symptoms. The other piece, the other thing that could potentially cause people to have self-perceived symptoms in response to gluten or wheat, even in the absence of celiac disease or wheat allergy, could be disordered eating right? Not eating enough, restrict binge cycling, other behaviors, compensatory behaviors that are harmful to people's digestion and well-being. And so I would really recommend checking out episode 175 of the podcast with Marcy Evans to hear more about how disordered eating can affect digestion. And why, again, perceived symptoms can be very real in response to these particular types of foods, but it's not actually the foods itself causing the symptoms. It's, in fact, the disordered eating that is creating an environment of greater sensitivity towards all kinds of foods or even particular types of foods that have more gluten or more, you know, of a certain type of carbohydrate people with disordered eating can actually have increased sensitivity in their gut towards these particular types of food without it being the food that's causing the problem in the first place. That is, if they didn't have the disordered eating, they wouldn't have these food sensitivities. It's just the disordered eating creating this environment of food sensitivity. And in many cases, when people heal the disordered eating, the perceived food sensitivities are eliminated or drastically reduced. And I talk with Marcy in episode 175 as well about the, the kinds of cases where sometimes people will have digestive symptoms that persist even after the disordered eating symptoms have been 
reduced significantly or even ceased completely. And that's, you know, a difficult situation to be in where your disordered eating is gone, is a thing of the past, and yet you're still having digestive symptoms. So we talk in that episode about what to do if that's the case for you. And good news is that there are many non-dietary, non-food-related, non-elimination diet things that you can do to take care of your digestion that have nothing to do with taking foods out of your life. So for you and, you know, anyone else who's in this boat of having been told by a naturopath that you had a a quote-unquote intolerance to gluten or wheat or any other food, I would really recommend getting a second opinion. I know there are good naturopaths out there who understand health at every size and are not prescribing elimination diets, but the ones that are prescribing elimination diets tend to be very much in diet culture, in the diet mentality, and you know what I call the wellness diet, which is the sneaky modern guise of diet culture that pretends to not be about dieting, but to be about wellness, and that actually is very much a part of diet culture. It's about demonizing certain foods while elevating others, eliminating foods that are considered to be quote-unquote bad. And so I don't know from your question, but it kind of sounds like your naturopath, the one that you've been working with, falls into that camp of, you know, the wellness diet type of naturopath. And that wellness diet mentality is unfortunately pretty rampant in the complementary and alternative medicine world, you know, integrative medicine, naturopathic medicine, acupuncture, chiropractic, all that stuff. I would say the wellness diet is sort of the most rampant form of diet culture in those spaces. There's also a lot of traditional diet culture as well, where it's stigmatizing weight overtly or covertly. But I would say the wellness diet is kind of like a hallmark of this complementary and alternative medicine world. And so I would really recommend getting a second opinion from a naturopath who is health at every size or a medical doctor who is health at every size or at least informed about disordered eating to some extent where you can get those validated tests, make sure that you don't have celiac disease, make sure that you don't have a genuine wheat allergy And then from that place of being confident that you don't have those issues, talk about what else you could do to address any symptoms that you might have. And I say that celiac disease and wheat allergy are really the only things you would need to cut out gluten and wheat for. And I know that there's a lot of ideas circulating out there and even some science to suggest that there is a sub sub-celiac type of wheat intolerance or gluten intolerance that exists called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. But in the research they've done on non-celiac gluten sensitivity, when there have been randomized controlled trials that, you know, really the gold standard of scientific evidence that randomized people to different groups to receive gluten or not receive gluten in the absence of knowledge whether or not they were getting gluten, there actually was no difference in people who had perceived themselves to be or had gotten the diagnosis of non-celiac gluten sensitivity. They were not, in fact, sensitive to gluten. They were not reacting to gluten in these randomized, controlled, double-blind, placebo-controlled challenges. And so something else is up in people's, this idea of supposed non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And I go into this in a lot more depth in my book, so I recommend picking that up for, you know, a real deep dive into all this science. But Basically, the the thinking now is that non-celiac gluten sensitivity could be people reacting to something else in the food, and that's one sort of diet culture interpretation, I would say, or that, you know, it really is a nocebo effect situation. And that's, uh, I interviewed one of the lead researchers 
on non-celiac gluten sensitivity in my book, did an exclusive interview for her just for the book, not for the podcast. And she told me that, well, I don't, I won't give it all away, but she told me some really interesting stuff about non-celiac gluten sensitivity and the nocebo effect that basically it really can be chalked up to what people believe about gluten as opposed to the idea that gluten is actually causing some kind of sensitivity for people. So I definitely recommend checking that out in my book. It's called Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. And as I record this, it'll be out in just about four months, a little over four months. So you can pre-order the book now at christyharrison.com slash book. That's christyharrison.com slash book. And I'm going to you know, definitely be talking a lot more about all of this stuff when the book comes out and would love to have you get your hands on a copy as soon as it drops. So I hope that's helpful. I hope that helps answer your question and give you some food for thought. But basically, I, I really want to emphasize having compassion for yourself. And I know you're doing the best you can as a parent. And it's an incredibly hard job. So definitely don't beat yourself up for having tried this thing of eliminated gluten and, and wheat. You know, a lot of people are doing it these days because diet culture is telling us to do it. And you probably don't have to do it, right? And you can get a second opinion and make sure, get these diagnoses ruled out to make sure that you don't actually need to be avoiding gluten or, or wheat. And then from there, proceed forward with access to all foods and not restricting or eliminating any particular foods for you or your daughter. If you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode of the podcast, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions and submit your question there. And then if you want to ask me any question you want and have me answer it a lot more quickly the following month, you can join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. The course is really the main way that I work with people right now because I'm not taking on any new clients in my private practice for a while as I'm gearing up for my book launch. So if you want direct support and guidance from me to help you heal from diet culture and have a whole community of other great folks who will support you in that healing, including other participants in the course that you can interact with and my staff who is there pretty much every day checking in and helping people with their individual issues, the course is really designed for you. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Lindsay Krasna. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. I am really grateful that I had a pretty fantastic relationship with food growing up. I have a lot of positive memories about, or I should say around my eating experiences as a kid. When I was thinking about you asking me this question, I actually was like going through some photos and of myself when I was a kid. And I found this one where I am sitting eating ice cream. I must've been like three or four years old. And I have like ice cream dripping all over my face. <laughs> and I just look like so carefree and in the moment. And I think that actually like really encapsulated how I felt about food as a kid. I remember just being very adventurous around food, willing to try anything and I have a lot of really good memories like with my family around food. One in particular that stands out is this thing called the Burger King game that my dad and I made up. I, actually, I'm not sure my dad might have made it up and told, <laughs> told me that I helped him do that. But he would basically <laughs> take me to Burger King and we'd each order, you know, whatever we 
decided. And usually I would get a burger and fries and a milkshake and he would get his food. And then we sit across from each other and he would point to whatever he wanted me to eat. And we couldn't talk. It was like a nonverbal game. And (laughs) depending upon what he pointed to, I would either like shake my head no and point at something else that I wanted. Or if he pointed to whatever it was that I wanted to take a bite of, I would nod my head and then I would take a bite of it. (laughs) Yeah. And it was like this really cute, like playful way that we, you know, kind of shared food together. And I also like in thinking back, think that was just a way that, you know, we were kind of each exerting our, you know, our autonomy, I guess. For me, it was my agency around food. And for him, you know, as a parent, him kind of like trying to guide me. And yeah, that that was definitely uh, a really nice one. That's so lovely. It does sound very like modeling of autonomy and consent and like conversation around what you want and allowing your desires to come forth and be the guiding force in what you choose to take a bite of. It's very sweet. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very true. And, you know, I think that held true for most of my eating experiences. I was actually talking to my mom earlier and like asking her what she remembers from her perspective about me and the way that she kind of approached my brother and I have a younger brother who's five and a half years younger. And she, you know, talked about how, which I I definitely remember, like them always kind of checking in with whether we were hungry or not, or just making sure our needs were consistently met. And at the same time, I don't remember like ever feeling pressured to eat more than I really wanted. And just in general, yeah, it was, it was, I'm really fortunate, you know, to have, have had some pretty respectful kind of nourishing upbringing around food. And that's so that's so rare in this day and age, I feel like, or when you were a kid too, probably it was pretty rare. I know for a lot of people I talked to around our generation, they had a, a harder time with food. I'm curious why you think your family was able to to sort of model that and how their own relationships with food might have played into that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Something I've thought about too. I think for one, you know, I know my mom grew up in a household where food was very like abundant and very like privileged um, in a lot of ways too. And I think her mom also was like a really good cook and she grew up in a pretty big family. And I think she had, for the most part, a pretty pretty positive experiences around mealtimes. They would eat family meals together. And that's definitely something that transferred down to us. We would often eat meals as a family, you know, when we were all around. And I think that's something that, you know, and also just like the idea of food as love, I think was, yeah, like a kind of a mantra. And so I think that transferred. And then with my dad, I know he didn't actually have the same type of experience around food. I think he, I know he grew up in a more like financially challenged situation and food wasn't always plentiful and available. And I don't think his needs were met in the way that he always needed around food. And my sense is for him that he really wanted to give that to my brother and I, and he was just kind of very attentive to to what we needed. And I think also on top of that, you know, one thing I've reflected on is like how their approach would have been different with me in particular if I was in a larger body. I was born thin and tall. That was kind of like my body type for the entirety of my life. And 
you know, the message that I got not only from my family, but also just from like the world at large was eat, (laughs) you know, like there's, there's definitely an encouragement to, to eat and to make sure that I was getting enough in um, a way that I don't think everyone gets. And so I, I have to wonder, you know, if my parents would have adjusted their message or their approach to feeding me if if my body was different. I don't know the answer to that, but I have to imagine it would have been, you know, different. Yeah, that's really important to acknowledge. And I think that privilege does play such a role, thin privilege, especially in yeah. developing balanced and peaceful relationships with food. Yeah. That, you know, I've started trying to, after uh, someone pointed this out to me, who had a really strong reaction to a certain episode of the podcast where the guest had other marginalized identities, but did not acknowledge their thin privilege. And this person was really upset. And I think triggered by the fact that there wasn't a mention of the other, you know, the the thin privilege and how differently they might've been treated if they hadn't had that thin privilege. So I'm trying to sort of, you know, acknowledge that with my guests now going forward and of course with myself, which I mean, I could probably put in a thing at the start of every episode being like, Hey, here are my privileges, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that's, it's always important to name, name those privileges. Cause yeah, I think my experience too, as someone in a thinner body growing up was people always also allowed me to have my intuitive relationship with food that was never interfered with. And now reflecting back, I can see like so many of my friends had their relationships with food interfered with because of judgments about their bodies that I was blissfully unaware of and not subjected to just because my body met this arbitrary standard. And like, how sad is that, that not everybody has that, you know, that basic human right of having your relationship with food be allowed to flourish and allowed to stay intuitive. Absolutely. Yeah. I also think, I, you know, I was thinking about other privileges that might have allowed, you know, me to have as positive of a relationship with food that I had. And I think another big one is financial privilege. You know, we grew up in, my brother and I, in a like middle upper class suburb of the U.S. And just the fact that like my parents could be around and buy enough food. And, you know, I have so many memories of us like stopping at gourmet grocery stores or grabbing take out just without really thinking about how much money it's going to cost. So the fact that they could do that and also the fact that they had the time to dedicate, you know, th- my my parents actually had somewhat non-traditional gender roles in, in the work sense. My mom is the main breadwinner and my dad was the stay-at-home dad for most of my life. And just the fact that like they could do that <laughs> and that someone was always around to, you know, make sure that I had what I needed and to to take care of that need was pretty lucky. Yeah, absolutely. And that is such another piece of it too, like the economic privilege and the fact that having enough food is such an important basis for having a peaceful relationship with food. Because if you don't have enough food, if there's not, if there's truly not enough from like a deprivation sense or, you know, financial sense rather, creating the deprivation mm-hmm. I mean, that's similar to the deprivation of diet culture, but also different too. you know, there's that sort of added piece of the financial, you know, having like other traumas around financial insecurity and instability that creates food insecurity too, and creates so much angst in people's relationships with food. So having enough is, is really so, 
so important and such a privilege. It shouldn't be a privilege. It should be a right, right? It's, yeah. You know, we all deserve that. For sure. And that's something that, you know, I definitely talk with my clients about when we're working on like eating disorder recovery is sometimes just kind of the way that our bodies interpret diets or restriction is, you know, I've heard you say this on the podcast. It's essentially like, like a, a physical trauma or like a food insecurity that regardless of the reason, whether it's like neglect or just inadequate food scarcity, it's certainly not ideal for our bodies. What I try to support clients in is just recognizing that, that, you know, building back body trust is, that's one of the first steps, you know, that needs to happen is that our bodies are going to trust that they're going to get enough consistently. Yes. Oh, so important. I think that enoughness is so key and is so taken away in diet culture in so many ways. And like the nexus of food insecurity or just scarcity and not quite having enough food for whatever reason with diet culture and eating disorders is so little explored. It needs There needs to be so much more research on this. And I mean, I've been fascinated by the research that does exist showing that people with food insecurity have higher rates of disordered eating and higher rates of clinically diagnosable eating disorders by like a very significant amount, like three or four times more than the general population, if not more. And that would seem surprising kind of like, especially the behaviors like restricting or compensating, like those behaviors you wouldn't think you would see in a, in a food insecure population, but actually those behaviors are more common, significantly more common in a food insecure population, which is really evidence to me that like diet culture doesn't discriminate. Diet culture doesn't discriminate based on socioeconomic status and that actually when people are in a situation of food scarcity it often drives binging as well the rates of binge eating and self-described overeating or night eating and things like that are much higher in a food insecure population too but then you have diet culture whispering in people's ears and likely driving that piece of compensating in response yeah or sometimes shouting in people's ears mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah prior to Going into private practice, I worked at a hospital in Brooklyn in a pretty low-income, low-resourced area. And I actually remember going to, I, I don't know if it's the same talk that you're referencing or the same research you're referencing, but the um, binge eating disorder conference when they had a presentation on the connections between food scarcity and disordered eating or eating disorders. I forget the exact phrasing, but I remember like I mean, at that point, it was a couple of years out of me working in that hospital setting. But I remember just thinking back at how many of the patients that I saw, I was working in like an outpatient clinic and frequently got referrals for quote unquote obesity, which is a whole other conversation. But I remember so many of the patients would come and say, you know, that they they were binging or they were just eating in this like out of control way and they just needed a diet plan. And hearing that research just like gave me such a different perspective on, you know, where that might've been coming from. Like it might not have just been a history of, of dieting, you know, self-inflicted restriction. It might've also actually been food scarcity. And that was something that, you know, I hadn't, yeah, like you said, it doesn't really get talked about as much. And I, I wish I knew that or had thought about that sooner. Yeah, that's the research I was referencing, definitely, that the research that was presented at BETA, the last BETA 
or I guess it was Bita Nita in Brooklyn last time. But yeah, I think it's it's really too poorly understood, especially among, I think, dietitians and other health professionals who work with low-income populations where, I mean, I also worked in like community health clinics for a while and community nutrition settings as well and saw so many people who it was almost like the the diet culture belief and the wellness diet talking about, you know, you have to eat these certain foods and avoid these other foods in order to avoid quote unquote obesity. That rhetoric from us in the positions of power in those programs like colluded with the diet mentality that the participants had or that the clients had already that they had internalized saying like yeah I just need a I just need a plan I just need to eat healthier what's wrong with me that I you know I'm trying to eat healthy I'm trying to like eat less and what's wrong with me or whatever and it, and it was always sort of put on this like it's just a lack of education you know that was like I feel like that's the premise and it's just so flawed as a premise when you think about it. Totally, totally. Yeah, I that lack of education as a explanation for people's eating behaviors just drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's also, and this is jumping ahead a little bit, but that was really like one of my main kind of motivations or I guess like interests in going back to school for counseling because I remember, you know, in our training as dietitians, as you know, like it's, it's really focused on just like hammering content into us and, and science and, you know, not that there's not a role for that. Of course, that's super important, but I feel like our education was based on this premise that like, we're supposed to be like these experts that impart our wisdom and knowledge onto clients or patients who just don't know as much. And, but I remember like that just didn't really add up to what was happening. Cause I like a lot of, people, you know, I would talk to like patients or just people in my life would say, yeah, like I know what to do or I understand nutrition science, but I just can't do it. And I remember thinking, well, what's behind that? Like maybe it's not just about rational, like our eating choices are not just rational and they're not just about how much we know, you know, they're about so much more than that. But I think at the same time, like our whole healthcare system is at least in the nutrition field, a lot of it is like based on this assumption that people just don't know and we just have to teach them. Oh, totally. It's like this sort of top-down idea that like these uneducated masses just don't get it and they're eating the wrong things or they're eating too much and they don't know the correct portion size or they don't know the correct things to choose. And so we have to educate them with this like detail of I mean, it sort of varies. I feel like the rationale varies depending on the setting. It's like in like a lower income setting, it might be like they just need like basic education, you know, and then in in sort of more economically privileged settings, it might be, well, they just need more nuance or more detail, more minutia, basically. But there's never an acknowledgement that like no amount of detail, no amount of nutrition science is going to change things for people who their bodies are just fighting it, right? Their bodies just don't want to be smaller. And also they have relationships with food and histories and patterns that we're not even acknowledging in this in this notion of like, you just need information crammed into your head. Right with you. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. I, I so want to talk about that transition for you into counseling. But first I want to like get back to the childhood piece and sort of like your own history with food. Cause I know you- you had your struggles with disordered eating later, but 
it's interesting to think, you know, that like thin privilege and sort of having a body that was considered acceptable or desirable insulated you to some degree in childhood. So how did that, how did your relationship with food kind of evolve and start to change as you got older? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that mostly positive kind of feelings around food and my body sustained pretty much through, I would say through high school, you know, at the same time, despite, you know, me not really having anything problematic about my relationship with food, then I still think I was absorbing messages of fat phobia the entire time that would eventually lead to not so good things later on. So I think things started to shift for me when I got to college. Throughout my earlier years and into high school, I played basketball and that was a pretty big part of my life. I played a lot of sports younger and then kind of honed in on basketball as I got older. And, you know, in a way that was like the initial ways that I learned to like connect with my body. And, and it was definitely a source of confidence and what my body could do gave me a lot of, yeah, just like confidence in, in myself. And, and it just, it was a sport that I loved and I was good at it. I excelled in high school and I eventually got recruited to play division one basketball at a school in upstate New York. And I kind of had a romanticized idea as to what being a college athlete was going to be like. And it was certainly a lot more demanding and not just like with the training demanding, but just like emotionally challenging than I think I, I expected. And I remember I got there my freshman year and I had a talk with my coaches before the season started and they said, you're really talented, but you need to get bigger to play at this level. That line just really stood out to me. And in retrospect, I think it would have been a lot more helpful if they said, you need to get stronger or you need to work on this skill um, or these set of sets of skills. But I think I you know, took that in as like something about you as a person needs to change. You know, at first that didn't really like affect me negatively. And I, I did actually gain weight at first, which was kind of like a natural thing when you combine, you know, we did like a pretty intense, had to go through like an intense weightlifting regimen. And, you know, I started eating in the dining halls and I think I was still growing also, you know, as a freshman and, and you know, food was just like much more unstructured. And so I did gain weight and at first it, it didn't really bother me much. I think that also had to do with the fact that I was excelling at basketball. So I actually had a really great season personally. And I like led my team as a freshman, which is, you know, not super typical in college athletics and kind of surpassed my own expectations. And so I think, you know, I got a lot of confidence from that. But then, you know, I think as time went on, I started to feel kind of stuck and and just almost like sad that I didn't really have the chance to have a quote unquote typical college experience. I saw my peers, you know, going to parties all the time and studying a lot, which <laughs> maybe sounds a little nerdy, but like I wanted to study more. <laughs> and yeah, and just like doing cool things that, you know, I, I felt like I never really had the chance to do. And I just, I think I knew deep down that there were like other parts of myself that I wanted to explore. And yeah, I think that combined with, despite me doing well personally, our team wasn't doing particularly well, like in the league. And there was just a lot of pressure and stress around basketball and sort of like the team culture. I didn't really find to be nourishing for me at least. And 
I think I just like started to feel stuck. And I think it was around that time when I, I don't think this was conscious at the time, but I think I, I started to not really know how to deal with that. And my using food as a way to control the situation or what I thought was controlling the situation is kind of what happened. And, you know, I think also there were other factors that that made the way that I feel, felt about my body really confusing. Like on one hand, I was being told by my coaches that I needed to get bigger. But then at the same time, you know, I kind of, I went into school majoring in nutrition and all the classes that I was taking were focused on, you know, or I shouldn't say all of them, but many of them were focused on addressing the quote unquote obesity epidemic. And there was a lot of talk about like avoiding the quote freshman and so I think it just felt really like confusing and conflicting. And as I, you know, as my body was a little bit bigger than what it had been growing up my whole life, I think I, I started to feel, you know, scared that I was losing something. I had always been kind of tabbed as like the thin one or the skinny one. And though I was definitely still objectively smaller bodied and, and had all the privileges that came along with that, I associated some of the negative things that were happening around me with, well, I just need to control what I'm eating, (laughs) which looking back, I wish I could just give myself a hug and give myself some, some different perspective. But, you know, at the same time, it was, yeah, it was part of my journey and it informed what I do today. So I feel the same way too. I'm like, I think back to when I was struggling and how much compassion I have for myself and how much I wish I could just say like, Hey, please don't do this to yourself. Here's some of the real, you know, the realness, give myself like some real talk. Yeah. Here's the food psych podcast. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know blast from the future. Here you go. (laughs) But then actually the food psych podcast would not exist if it hadn't been for me going through that. So I definitely feel like it's always complicated to think about that stuff. Like I don't have any regrets, but I do wish I could have saved myself from the pain too. Yeah. And I think both can coexist, you know? Yeah. I think that's pretty natural, especially when you're, when you develop self-compassion, you know, like I don't think I really had any self-compassion at the time or much, much of it anyway, but I now looking back can have so much compassion for myself back then. And so of course, when you have compassion, I think the natural thing is to want to protect someone from pain, but sure. Yeah. But then it's also led us to where we are now. So there's something, something fruitful that came out of that because we were able to move through it and be resilient and recover. Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. So how did that unfold then, the starting to try to control your food? Where did it go from there? Yeah. So I remember, <laughs> I don't know if this is like a conscious thought, but looking back, I think what happened is, you know, I told myself I am just going to eat like a quote unquote normal college student. (laughs) And what I meant by that is like a (laughs) non-athlete. And what that did was put me at an energy deficit. And over time, at first, my basketball playing wasn't really affected. And then over time, it, it was. And I just became less, you know, productive on the court. And I think I was just like physically and emotionally kind of checked out. And it was frustrating, I think, for everyone, because I honestly didn't really know, like, why I was doing that. And, you know, I also felt like this is happening. And the way that, like, my coaches responded was 
with like their own frustration that like I wasn't playing at the level that I used to. And I think what would have been really helpful is if they, you know, approached me with more like curiosity as to what's like going on inside of me. But yeah, I mean, my role in the team really shifted and I went from like leading the team and scoring my freshman year to by the end of my junior year, not really getting any playing time in some games. And so, yeah, that, that was, it was a hard time for me, but ultimately I, well, actually before I jumped to that, I also did reach out to a dietitian that was on campus and that was also a formative experience. I'll say she was really well-meaning and, and really experienced. And I think ultimately she was trying to get me to feed my body more closely to what it needed, but the way that she went about it was not particularly helpful for what I needed at the time. I remember her giving me like a food plan with a calorie range to aim for. And, you know, maybe that's helpful for certain people, but, or maybe not, but, but for me, it just, I felt like we were just kind of talking about like the surface things. And I think what I would have really appreciated was like some, again, some curiosity about like what was going on in my emotional world and what my experience was like playing basketball. And, and she also, you know, said things like, I think to try to alleviate my anxiety, but wasn't really helping me like dismantle my own internalized fat phobia. So she would say things like, you won't look that much different, even if you gain a few pounds or like, I won't let you gain too much weight. So yeah, things like that just didn't really feel like they were kind of getting at the crux of what was really going on for me. And so, yeah, again, I mean, it's something that, you know, I remember and tried to do differently now in my own practice. And, you know, fortunately, after my junior year, I made the decision to quit the team. And I say fortunately, because I think for me, that was like really just what I needed. And I remember feeling just a huge weight lifted off my shoulders. And again, like looking back, I I have to acknowledge the privilege that comes along with this because, you know, I know there are some athletes who are on scholarships and like that's the only way that they might be able to afford college or afford the particular school that they went to and for me that wasn't a deciding factor in staying on the team or not and so you know I'm really lucky that I, I think I was able to make that decision but it was really hard I still love the sport and I still love everything that the sport all the opportunities that had given to me and that also felt like a loss of my identity I always Felt like I was known as Lindsay, the basketball player for most of my um, childhood and, and teens. And so it was challenging, but it was the right decision for me. Did that help you start to have a better relationship with food in your body? Did that start to help you feel more at home just at school and in life in general? Or Yeah, I would say all of the above. So with food and my eating, I, I think things just like naturally became less rigid and restrictive. And which is interesting because it really, for me, wasn't such a conscious process. It just kind of happened when I, you know, was out of the situation that I felt, you know, so stuck in. And, you know, that being said, I, I look back and I don't think I was fully eating intuitively either or fully connected with my body. I think there was still a lot of practice that I needed in getting back there. But yeah, it didn't feel like something that was like on my mind all the time and I certainly gained some of the weight back and I just remember like feeling more alive. And I also joined like an acapella group and I think it's just an interesting thing because I, I feel like I literally found my voice in that. And I, yeah, I got to do all the things I think that I really wanted to do 
that I was like so envious of my peers going to parties and yeah, just kind of starting to explore other things outside of basketball. Yeah, that's great. How was your relationship with like being a nutrition student at that time too? Like was that, because I know there's so many different styles of nutrition programs. They all have diet culture for the most part embedded, I think pretty much across the board, except for a few stellar examples, all have diet culture very much at the root of them. I think to varying degrees in some programs or another that might be more or less evident. So did you find it was easier to be a nutrition student and not let that rigid way of eating or thinking about food take over or was it still kind of in the back of your mind? Like, this is how I should be eating. Yeah. You know, that's a great question. I think that I still had those thoughts in the back of my mind, but they were more in the back than in the forefront, like they were before. I do remember just thinking like, like after I quit the team and was more focused on other stuff, just thinking like, what does it look like to eat as a (laughs) non-athlete? And similarly with how I went about moving my body. Like it was, it was interesting to just think about the way in which I approached that without having this like goal of basketball performance. So that's definitely something I remember thinking about a lot during that period. But, you know, I I feel like when I was, especially like during my dietetic internship, I think I was honestly like questioning if I wanted to work in the nutrition field. And, you know, like I said, I remember just witnessing dietitian patient interactions, particularly during the internship experience and feeling like, I don't know, kind of icky about how a lot of it was going down and just thinking like, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do that. And so, yeah, I don't know if that fully answers your original question, but I I don't think I was fully intuitive or anything, but I also don't think I was. I was going to say too, it's kind of like this middle ground that so many people find themselves in a diet culture, you know, where it's like, yeah, between intuitive eating and like full blown dieting is there's some sort of gray area in there. Yes, that accurately captures it. Yeah. And I think too, I was still very much in the mindset of, I mean, what was being taught to me at least was that weight is a problem or, you know, being at a higher weight is a problem and it's something that we need to quote unquote fix. And that was sort of the mission associated with working with people in larger bodies. And I didn't quite honestly, like really question that at the time, which again, is even just hard to think about that. But yeah, I mean, that's the reality of kind of what we were being fed Yeah, we don't know any different. Like as dietetic students or early career dietitians, I think it's just how it is and you don't question it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm curious too, in terms of your relationship with movement after retiring from basketball, but then coming back into basketball later, because I know you played professionally after college too. So like, what was that process like? And how did you, how did you make the decision to start playing professionally? Yeah. So, you know, I think when, so the timeline of how things worked out for me is I quit college basketball after my junior season, junior year season. And then I had my senior year. And then my year after that, I did the dietetic internship. So I actually got my RD like a week before I flew out to Israel, which is where I played. (laughs) Wow. How did that all come about? Like, (laughs) so curious. Yeah. The way that that happened, (laughs) You know, I think over those last two years, I 
kind of had the realization that I, I did still love basketball and I loved playing and, you know, I still played in like a rec league, even after I, you know, I quit the the team and I still love the game. And it was always had been a big part of my life. And I also played in this tournament called the Maccabi games, which is a basically like a Jewish Olympics type of event that happens every four years in Israel. And I did that actually the year after I quit the team. And so I, I was still kind of connected with playing and, it was through that experience that I had like a really good time, not just playing basketball, but also like the trip that came with it. There's a lot of like other activities that, that are part of that tournament that include, you know, kind of sightseeing and spending other time with Jewish athletes. And I think that just like renewed my sense of love for the game. And I also happened to know a couple of other teammates from that team that had gone on to play professionally in Israel. And so kind of seeing keeping in touch with them and hearing how it was going just kind of made me think, well, you know, I'm only going to have one chance to do this because if I don't do it now, I don't think I'll ever do it. And so I decided to go for it. And it was interesting. I think I did approach it with a different mindset, at least with regard to the training part of it. Like I think because I knew it was it was going to just be this like isolated experience and I wasn't like putting pressure on myself to perform other than just like hang in there with the people I was playing with. Cause yeah, it was a pretty high level team that I was on. And I mean, that's kind of how that happened. And it was also, I think a way for me to like pause on thinking about like next steps in my life. The actual experience of, of being in Israel was both enlightening and challenging at the same time. I think that there were a lot of really positive things about it and that, you know, I got to experience life outside of my comfort zone, just like seeing what it's like to be really a foreigner in another country. I fell in love. <laughs> I got to play basketball and and by nature of being on the team, we got to travel, you know, to not only cities within Israel, but also like different countries for tournaments. And yeah, so I think, you know, it really like just opened my eyes to people and places outside of myself. And that's really what my main motivation was. And basketball was kind of just like the vehicle. And I think my eating also sort of took a similar trajectory. I I think I kind of got in back in touch with that like adventurous part of me. I remember just like loving falafel and eating that like all the time. And I got the nickname falafel lover from that <laughs> experience. The person that I was dating at the time, their mom was a really good cook. So I would like just eat this native Israeli food. And yeah, it was just, it was a pretty unique experience in that way. And I think it was just another way that I was like exploring my preferences and my, my relationship with food. And it's interesting that playing at a professional level, you actually had more freedom with food than when you're playing at the collegiate level. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think that was also just like self-imposed and like where I was at the time. I think actually playing in Israel, I had more freedom in general, which was a surprise to me, I remember. But it kind of makes sense because, you know, when one's playing professionally, really the only commitment of the day is like a hour, maybe hour practice at most. And the rest of the day is, is yours. And, you know, in college, we would be practicing around the same amount of time, but then you know, that was also coupled with like trying to maintain a full-time academic caseload. <laughs> and so, yeah, for me, it actually felt more like a break mentally and also just 
with being able to like have space to explore lots of different sides of myself, including my like hungers. That's so interesting. And so how did your relationship with food and your body and with movement to evolve after that, after you stopped playing professionally? Yeah. So when I moved back to the U.S., I moved to New York after that one year for grad school and counseling. And I think it was around that time when I really started the process of more kind of diligently and consciously becoming attuned with my needs and wants and emotions. And, you know, I think with counseling, with the counseling program, I kind of had this assumption that, you know, I was just going to go to school and they were going to teach me strategies and tips and skills (laughs) to be a better counselor. And the reality is that it was actually much more about learning about ourselves, learning about our own stigmas and internalized stigmas and biases and emotional world. And and so I think that sort of paralleled my continuing process of becoming more in touch with my hunger and fullness and satisfaction, you know, around eating and and with movement as well. You know, I think there was definitely a period I remember where I was just trying out like lots of different things, um, especially when it came to physical activity. Like I had never really had the space to do that. And so I remember just going to like different sorts of classes or taking walks in the park and trying out yoga for the first time. And I think that just kind of started the whole process. And I realized through that encouragement of, I would say like of the counseling program and that I really liked doing that. Like I liked reflecting on my process and myself and it was the start of just learning to kind of question things. And that was also my first experience in therapy. And, you know, I think I was really lucky to have landed on on a therapist that was a really good match for me. And, and she, interestingly, she didn't necessarily like specialize in intuitive eating or eating disorders or anything like that. But she really just like helped me get in touch with myself in many ways. And, you know, I know for some people, they're like, more consciously focused on healing their relationship with food and and their bodies and um, and movement. And for me, it actually kind of happened more, I would say, the other way around. Like I think I, by nature of just getting more in touch with my self in general, and specifically like my emotional world, that kind of opened up the door, I think, for me to be starting to understand, you know, my body better and other things around food and and movement kind of happened more intuitively as a result. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that was very much my experience too, actually. And I think there's maybe a certain amount of privilege in that of, you know, being able to maybe having the food piece or the food and body piece not be such a glaring thing that you need all the work to be around that, you know, because I know for a lot of people that is the main thing and that's where they need to start. But very much for me too, I was in therapy for other things, you know, anxiety and just like difficulty with social situations and sort of difficulty managing life. And that's like what drew me into therapy in the first place, difficulty in relationships. And so getting into that, into that space where I could have, and I, you know, also was fortunate to find a really great therapist who just got me and did not specialize in eating disorders either, but just was very compassionate and very helpful at sort of untangling all of the things that I was stuck with and helping me 
develop more self-compassion, helping me manage my anxiety, helping me just tune in more to what I really wanted and stop living for other people and stop trying to be something that I thought I should be and just actually tune into like what I really wanted for my life. And through that, we did talk about food and touch on food and stuff because it became clear that I was, you know, restricting myself with food as well. But I was restricting myself in so many other ways too, that, you know, that was kind of the gateway that pulled along the food behind it, I think. Yeah. That's such a great point that it's also a privilege to have had that be sort of like the food stuff be secondary. And I also think that's why it's so important that regardless of whether or not this is like an area of specialty for providers, that there's at least some understanding and or sensitivity around food and body concerns, because, you know, I can imagine it being really confusing for someone who's going to a therapist who, you know, or a dietitian for something that that isn't necessarily like the main focus or what the client describes as their presenting issue. But then, you know, if it comes up and and the therapist or dietitian is kind of giving mixed messages about it or changing their tune from, we're going to help you connect with yourself. Oh, but that's fine that you're only eating meal a day or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Right. Yeah. Like, oh, that seems to be what you need to do to lose weight or whatever. Like, yeah. Ugh those mixed messages can be so painful for people. And I agree, like really general therapists and dietitians, I think should have a working understanding of disordered eating and how it shows up in the world and how they can, how they can help or at least do no harm because probably everyone is going to come across folks with those issues. Yeah. I think about that a lot too with dietitians. You know, I think in our field that there's, there tends to be like a, idea of like eating disorders is a specialty area or intuitive eating or health at every size. That's like a specialty area, but particularly for health at every size, it's like, no, that needs to be the paradigm for everyone. And yeah, it's really disappointing how many clients I've had that have been harmed and have, you know, ended up coming to me for support and have just got such opposite messages just because that person wasn't a quote-unquote expert in this area, but that shouldn't be an excuse. Yeah, that's such a great point that really it's not a specialty area, that it needs to be part of everything, part of every specialty, because so many people struggle with this and just need that perspective and that paradigm in order to feel fully seen and fully understood by a therapist or fully supported in their creating a better relationship with themselves and knowing who they truly are and connecting with who they truly are. And I think it's a a relic or a product of diet culture that we do think of these things as specialties because it serves diet culture's interests, you know, to section them off as like, oh, that's nice. These eating disorder people over here, these health at every size people over here can do their thing and they're serving a very tiny population, but this everyone else needs weight management or whatever. And it's like, actually, you have that completely wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's such an interesting observation. Yeah. And it's also really interesting because the idea of intuitive eating is that we're trying to move away from rigidities and compartmentalizing things and (laughs) being more connected and, and yet it's happening at like the meta level in our field. I know. 
It's really fascinating. And I think about that a lot. I've said this before on the podcast. I feel like eating disorders as a diagnosis, like having clinical criteria for eating disorders, I get the purpose that it serves in terms of research, in terms of insurance reimbursement and stuff like that. But I think it does a real disservice to people who have struggles with food, which is people all along the spectrum from full-blown eating disorder to just, you know, not just, but sort of garden variety disordered eating where that's seen as the norm in society. And so nobody thinks it's serious. Nobody thinks there's anything wrong with it, but it's actually incredibly painful and incredibly damaging to people's health, to people's well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, for you from that point of starting counseling, how did it unfold from there? How did your relationship with food and your body sort of evolve once you started doing that work? Yeah. So, you know, my first job out of grad school was in an eating disorder treatment center, a couple of different ones actually. And and that's when I first became exposed to concepts of intuitive eating, which again is kind of interesting. You know, I had this whole, as we all do as dietitians, years of training and this now very foundational concept and theory that I use literally every day in my work is, you know, I'm learning this for the first time, like on the job. It's just really mind boggling to me. But I, yeah, I was fortunate to start learning about intuitive eating early on in my career. And I remember just being really wowed by some of the concepts, like I had never thought about concepts like satisfaction and joyful movement and, you know, at least not with these words before. So I think my first experiences working in the eating disorder field and and learning about intuitive eating gave me more of a language to do the work that I was doing. And also like for myself, I started thinking about my hungers and my fullness and, you know, what sort of activities I enjoyed for myself a little bit more. And I actually, ironically, I think working in the eating disorder field made me see how disordered our culture really is and view eating disorders less as a pathology, but more as a creative solution to a fucked up culture, <laughs> which isn't how I you know, viewed that before. Yeah. So at what point in your, in your career, in this trajectory of like learning more about intuitive eating, did you start to get exposed to health at every size and start to integrate that into your career? Before I learned about health at every size, I remember in the treatment centers that I was working in, the philosophy, you know, early on was treat the eating disorder first and then address weight if the person's BMI is still, quote unquote, too high, which in retrospect, just like doesn't make any sense. But that's what everyone did. And that's sort of what we were taught that higher weights were still something to be remedied. And my thoughts on that and my questioning of that assumption changed when I went to an eating disorder conference, the first one I ever went to in 2012. And I saw, I had the chance to see two different presentations that really just like blew my mind. One was by John Robison, who I believe is a researcher in the field. And he gave this presentation talking about the associations between weight and health, but basically made the argument that, you know, you can't prove causation based on correlation and gave some other possible explanations as to why this association existed to begin with. And I remember just being totally blown away by that. And then later in the conference, Deb Burgard gave a presentation who is also, I, I know she's been a guest on your podcast too, and someone that I've continued to follow. And 
such a leader in the Hayes field too, one of the originators of the movement. Yeah, which I didn't even know at the time. You know, I was just this like wide-eyed, bushy-tailed new <laughs> dietitian. <laughs> you know, I didn't know who was speaking, but all I knew is she was on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember her talk, it was kind of on the same theme as John Robison's, but she one of, as part of her presentation, she was showing examples of people whose bodies were considered, quote, overweight or, quote, obese, according to the BMI. And, you know, the people she was showing were like well-known people. And one of the, most of them were celebrities. One of the celebrities was LeBron James. And I remember that just really hit me. You know, obviously with my basketball background, I, I know who he is. <laughs> and I mean, like many people do, but I just thought like, wow, something is deeply messed up with our medical system if LeBron James is considered ill solely based on his body. And so I think that that was like the first moments really that I started questioning what I had been fed around the weight health association. And from there, I still worked in in settings where health at every size certainly wasn't the prevailing paradigm, but on my own, I, I started to like delve into some more resources and and information on it. I read books. I've been listening to your podcast for a long time. Um, and it's been really cool to like hear, you know, how you've evolved and the messages that you share. And, you know, I joined a health at every size consult group. I continued going to conferences and followed, you know, different accounts and read articles. And I just like kind of threw myself into this stuff because again, there there wasn't much really any information on this in in our training. So yeah, eventually I think it just clicked for me. And when I got to the point that, you know, I was ready to take the jump and give private practice a try. I remember in the beginning I was kind of like doing that fence splitting thing where I hadn't fully let go of the idea of pushing I, I don't even like that's maybe not the right word, but just working with people on weight loss in a quote unquote non-diet way. Oh yeah. Been there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, it felt like a, this like safe middle ground or something, but I think it just got to a point and fortunately it didn't last too long where I just realized like it wasn't working and it kept getting me in these like icky situations. And I feel like I was confusing clients and I was confused and it just felt progressively like, dissonant. And so I remember actually in one of the virtual consult groups making, talking to the group about this one particular client that I did actually take on as a weight loss client and and just talking about how, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I didn't actually take her on using those, those words, but I think I told her we would work on things in a non-diet way. And right. The sort of like tacit promise of weight loss, or she came in wanting weight loss and you were like, well, I can give you this other thing. And you know, yeah, maybe that will, yeah, that might accomplish your goals or whatever. (laughs) Exactly. Like being kind of vague about it. Yeah, exactly. And she, you know, understandably so got to a point where like I hadn't been transparent and, and I wasn't giving her, I think what she 
thought that I had promised and what I kind of indirectly promised. And it was around like supervision with that client that I just realized, man, like I have to get clear on what I'm doing. And I, I made the decision to just like take weight loss off my website as a starting point and then, you know, started to get better around like the language that I used to articulate how I worked and and then also obviously like implemented that in my work and just became more kind of firmly rooted in what I will align with and what I won't and still respecting clients' autonomy to make a decision that feels right for them. But that felt like just such a a blessing, but also a little scary too, because I wasn't sure you know, there's always the fear that like maybe no one will want this. <laughs> From like a business perspective, it is scary to be in private practice or in any sort of business setting and and be like, okay, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to start offering this service that is seemingly so radical or that is, you know, really principled, but is anyone still going to come? I definitely remember having that fear as well when I was transitioning over. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's a risk that we have to take if we really believe in what we're offering. And to me, it was worth practicing with integrity. Like once I knew the information and and once I knew how harmful it can be to work with someone in a weight-centric way, I just, it got to the point where I just felt like I didn't have a choice. And ironically, I think if anything, it just it allowed for the clients that did land in my practice to be a better match for what I was able to offer them. And I think being more clear on my messaging and and on what I stand for and the way that I'm willing to approach things, it actually helped build more trust with the clients that, yeah, were, were coming to me. So... I feel the same way. I feel like it's being more rooted in that way and not trying to straddle the fence and being confused and confusing helps to create better relationships with clients and people know what they're getting. They know what to expect when they work with you and you feel in alignment. So there's not that awkward sort of like pull on your heart that's like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Allows you to be more present in the relationship. Yes. Yes. Very true. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks. (laughs) I think what's also really cool is I'd never really expected this and I didn't even like set out for this to happen. But as I, again, like became more rooted in health at every size, I, my practice actually grew. This isn't why I did it, but it did continue to grow. And I felt like really good about the work I was doing. And I felt like, things were going well in my practice and it started to blossom. And I recently just hired, well, over the last couple of years, two amazing associates who are also health at every size aligned. And that's just been like such a blessing. And going back to that like do or die moment of making the decision to practice fully rooted in this way, I think actually set like a really strong foundation for where it could go and, and well, where it could continue to grow. I love it. I love that it's led to to growth too, because it's great to see like health at every size doesn't have to mean scaling down your business or having less flourishing career than you want. It actually can mean the opposite. It can mean growing and having more people come into the fold. Yes, for sure. And also really gave me a lot of hope knowing that, you know, both of the associates that now work for me, they were exposed to 
concepts around intuitive eating and health at every size so much earlier than I was, you know, and that was something I honestly kind of surprised me. Um, that's kind of cool too. You know, I think when I first thought, thought about hiring someone, I thought, you know, I might have to spend a lot of time educating them and kind of helping them unlearn some of the harmful messages that we all learn as part of our training. And, you know, not that, of course, that's like an ongoing process for all of us, but but just knowing that they kind of got started with that way sooner than I ever did was, was pretty encouraging in terms of where the field is going. So, oh, that's amazing. I love that. Well, I could talk to you forever. I love hearing about your practice and the direction it's gone to and having known you for years now, it's been cool to see like both of our trajectories go in this in this direction. So really psyched to have you on and tell people where they can find you and learn more about your work and your practice. Yeah, thanks. So our practice is based in Brooklyn and Manhattan in New York City and People can find me online at www.lknutrition.com. Our, I should say my Instagram handle is at LKNutritionPLLC. That's both on Instagram and Twitter. And then we have a Facebook page that's just Lindsay Krasna Nutrition. Awesome. We'll put links to all that in the show notes as well so people can find you and definitely encourage folks in the New York City area to come check you out. It's rare to find fully rooted Hayes dietitians in this area, I think. It's, you know, there, there are sort of relatively few of us for how big of a population center it is. So I think it's, it's very cool that you're here. Yeah, thanks, Christy. And yeah, I'm, I'm so honored to have been a guest and just love the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Lindsay Krasna for joining us on this episode, and thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some practical tips to help you get started on the anti-diet path for yourself, you can grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message and spread the word by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. You can also leave us a nice rating and review in your podcast provider of choice, which is another way to help new listeners discover us and is always so appreciated. I love reading the nice responses and feedback people leave me. So you can go to christyharrison.com slash subscribe to see all the places you can subscribe and review and rate the podcast. That's christyharrison.com slash subscribe. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, just go to christyharrison.com slash 205. That's christyharrison.com slash 205. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to make peace with food, break free from diet culture, and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. A big thanks to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasik, and our community and content associate, Kimmy Singh, who is sadly leaving us now that our regular community and content associate, Vinci Chue, is back from maternity leave. So thanks so much to Kimmy for her service this summer, and welcome back, Vinci. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble, and our theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Ooh.